We said, well, we've got this great curriculum that you really should evaluate, and we think it could be a really good fit. And we presented IEW, and we have some great solutions, I think, for the English Composition 1 and 2 side of things. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Andrew, we hear over and over again from college professors, my students don't know how to write. It is a universally attested to frustration Yeah, by almost everyone I've met. Yeah, and we've actually talked about creating college-level curriculum, and we just didn't get a lot of traction there. But we also have the other side of the coin where students who take composition from IEW They write to us and say, well, they write to you and say, I did so great on my composition assignment. I got A's on all my compositions and my professor wants to use my compositions as examples. And they ask, how did you learn to write like this? Yeah, I hear a story like that almost every single convention I go to. The last one, Mm -hmm. the young man was um, first year at the Air Force Academy. Oh, wow. And was commended on his writing He didn't think he was anybody special. Mm -hmm. And then some of the other cadets were asking him, how do you do this? Where did you learn? So that's great for us. Yes. It makes me very happy. But the question, of course, is, you know, how do we multiply and expand that? Mm -hmm. And uh, we do have a guest. We do have a guest in our studio. Dr. Nick Ellis. Nick is one of these people who I just feel better for being in the same room with him. Mm. Like he doesn't even have to talk and I feel better. (laughs) But uh, I I introduced him this morning to our staff and I said, you know, he's number one, intelligent, Mm -hmm. one of the smartest people I've met. Well, and he does have a PhD from Oxford. Yeah, I know. But that doesn't mean he's intelligent. (laughs) I mean – you would assume, but 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 beyond that, he's just good. Mm-hmm. He he's just oozes goodness. When mm-hmm. you think of the good, the true, and the beautiful, good mm-hmm. in that would attach to every interaction I've had with him. And then, of course, one of the the great things and why he's with us here today is his vision. Mm-hmm. He's really got vision for making a huge, huge difference in the whole world. And that, I think, is a hard thing to sustain because, mm-hmm. you know, we all get into our little corner of the world and think, okay, if I can make my little corner of the world better in some small way, then I can die in peace. But I don't think Nick is happy with a small corner of the world. <laughs> and so we're very, very happy to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you very much, Andrew. You, you not only got your PhD from Oxford, you taught there for quite a while. Tell us just a little bit 
about your experience at Oxford. Yeah, I uh, I moved to Oxford in 2009, and I remember walking onto campus and just being in awe of the the history and the heritage, especially within kind of the Christian context that was there. You know, so many of these different colleges, and there's many different colleges around Oxford. Um, many people think, many Americans think that there's a University of Oxford. It's really these these different communities of learning, St. John's College or um, Christ Church. I was at Wycliffe Hall, which is a small Anglican seminary in the heart of Oxford. And I was able to teach there primarily Greek, um, did some New Testament edu- uh, instruction as well. And uh, you know, it was an amazing opportunity to be able to come in and, and just from a pure educational context. The uh, the, the way that, that that Oxford works is yes, there's the university with all of its faculty and its libraries, and the Bodleian Library, for example, by law has to have every book in English. If you find a book that's not in English, or that's in English and not in their library, they have to go. They have to go find it. Wow. <laughs> And most of the volumes in German and French. Um, mm-hmm. And so I would go to my carol, my little desk, and I would do my work. And I'd give them a slip, a little p- p- paper slip, and say, I need these these books. Um, I think the oldest I ever ordered was from 800. And uh, I show up the next morning, and there they all are wow. on my desk. And I do my work, do my research, do my writing, and say, take these back and bring these next 10 books. And so just an opportunity of really kind of engaging in the entire kind of intellectual tradition of the West. Um, it was an, an amazing opportunity. But then to not just be in a lecture environment or a research environment, really the beauty of Oxford is in this tutorial context mm-hmm. where in your college uh, you have you have a tutor. My context, it was uh, it was Dr. Marcus Bockbuehl. Um, and I would go away and do, do my work, but once or twice a week I'd come in, we'd read together, read my essays, Socratic discussion, dialectic discussion, those those kinds of things. And really that's where I was formed as a, as a soul when you talk about being an alma mater. You know, it, it wasn't just all the data dump that was happening mm. from our professors and from the, the guy with the long black robe walking in and giving his two-hour lecture and walking out. Mm. Um, it was really that, 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 that tutorial context in college that was so powerful for me. Um, so yeah, it was a very, very inf- uh, formative uh, four years for me. And and prior to that, correct me if I'm wrong, you were homeschooled. Yes, so I was homeschooled in unusual circumstances. That's right. So in 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 '92, my parents made the decision to move to Brazil, and um, they packed up and we moved to the North Amazon, and they brought um, I think it was three thousand volumes. It was the largest classic library, classical library in the country, and they put it in a house and took all of our kids there and said, we're just going to, we're going to learn and we're going to read. Mm. And you're going to spend your time in your childhood reading and fishing in the afternoons on the Amazon. And so it wow. was an amazing context um, for us. And um, and mom did an amazing job. Uh, there were there were five of us children. And um, she has basically dedicated her life to the formation of her family. She'll come into the story a little bit later. She's done some amazing things after we left. I left Brazil and began to travel, um, got a a degree, an undergraduate degree in in classical languages. The problem with not having a home uh, is you just keep moving and moving. So I went to <laughs> Germany, then Israel for my Hebrew studies, and then Vancouver, and then ended up in Oxford where I got my master's. And somewhere along the line, you got married and started having children. I did. I met a uh, wonderful lady named Laura Lee. I walked in the first day of college, saw this tall, blonde ballet dancer uh, standing against the wall. And until that moment, I was going back to Brazil to marry a Brazilian and then everything changed. Um, <laughs> and so then she uh, she had the choice. She could either get married when we graduated or she could run away to Africa. And so she chose Africa. 
and oh, ran wow. away for two years. <laughs> okay. And then that's where I began to travel a little bit. Mm. And she came back six weeks later, we got married, and then we moved to Oxford. Wow. Fantastic. So you're perfectly bilingual, trilingual. You must know a lot of languages. Yeah. So I, I certainly I, I speak Portuguese. I, I teach in Portuguese. Um, my poor wife, who's trying to learn Portuguese, would walk in twice a year. I'll teach a Greek class in Portuguese. Oh, wow. Oh, and so she'll walk in and she'll – I once saw her in tears. She just said, I'm trying so hard to learn <laughs> Portuguese. And I didn't understand but every third word. It's like, baby, I was teaching a Greek class. <laughs> it wasn't Portuguese. It was kind of Portuguese. Yeah, Work wow. in Portuguese, um, trying to improve my Spanish now that we live in Dallas, Texas. Worked extensively in German and French and then all the, the classical languages. And how many children do you have? We have five. My youngest is three. My oldest is 12. Okay. And you're homeschooling, of course. We are homeschooling our, our five children. Yeah. So, and I met you because you contacted us about talking about how we could work together with your organization. And and when I say organization, you have several organizations. So tell us just a little bit about what you do. Yes. Yes. Well, we were, um, I was finishing up my time in Oxford. And I was teaching, and I remember very distinctly sitting in uni- the university parks um, there in, ta- in downtown Oxford, just just really trying to get a sense of God's leading on, you know, is this where I should be giving my life? Um, is this what I should be investing in? And yet, even though I'm an academic in many ways, um, my life has very much been dedicated to the field, um, small communities, affinity groups of families and communities. And what drives me is formation. You know, human formation and human flourishing mm-hmm. in communities. And so um, begin to get requests from Brazil. Great. You're at Oxford. You're teaching. You've done your, your DPhil. But don't abandon us. How can you really continue to invest in our communities? And at the time, homeschooling was illegal in Brazil. Illegal. Illegal. Completely okay. illegal. And German-style, uh, European-style kind of controls over education. A very strong sense that the child belongs to the state. But increasingly, families were beginning to say, this just is not – uh, this is not healthy. This is not true. And the state has become a poor steward of our children. Mm-hmm. What recourse do we have? What What do you think caused parents to start to think and feel that way? Because it, it was a change. There must have been some things to help precipitate that. Especially when you consider that Brazil is, is, a, is a very strongly Catholic country. It's, it's very strongly pro-family historically. How do you have this kind of sea change where suddenly parents begin to distrust the state with their children? Mm-hmm. And really is what happened is that after, so post-war, uh, the Frankfurt School went to the states for kind of a uh, an experiment on social Marxism. When you say Frankfurt School, um, just yeah, so fill in the people like me who aren't 100% sure. So you have this post-war Marxism that comes out after World War II and looking at the failure of uh, the Soviet Union, the failure of uh, the great society, that this ideal that would have been rebuilt. And they begin to say, well, there's, there has to be some other ways of doing this, this kind of utopian vision of, mm-hmm. of a kind of a Marxist idealized vision. And so they began to do some social experimentation, um, certainly out of Columbia, uh, university in New York, mm-hmm. but then also a very, very strong infiltration into Brazil. Hmm. And so Brazil, because it's strongly European, most people think of Brazil as maybe Latin America, Latino. Mm-hmm. Brazil is a, is a European colony. You're either yeah. German, Portuguese, Italian. There's a very strong Japanese colony presence. And so European philosophy 
is very, very strong in Brazil. And so this, uh, you know, Marxism really began to take hold in the social structures of Brazil. And then in education with Paulo Freire, you can look up F-R-E-I-D-E, Paulo Freire, begin to really have a strong controlling presence on the schools. And this is where this idea of, this, of the child belonging to the state began to come in. Well, one of the first social experiments that they begin to really push into is the idea of gender. Is gender a social construct? And this would have been when? This is in the in the in the sixties and seventies. Wow! Okay. And so um, Brazil has always been one of the earliest places where you see a lot of social experimentation in the schools with mm-hmm. questions of gender, with questions of um, you know human nature, um, questions of sexuality. And so the things that we have really begun to experience over the last you know, 10, 12 years here in the States, Brazilians begin to experience 25, 30 years ago. And frankly, some of the best books on social Marxism and gender theory are coming out of a response from Brazil because they saw it. They, 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 they've been through it and they've seen it coming. So that is probably the number one thing that began to trigger a lot of these parents to say, we were okay with the economic theory. We were okay with political theory, but now you're beginning to mess with the very core identity of what it means to be human, and we just we can't take it. You're yeah. gonna you're because they are strong Catholics, and 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 the the Protestant movement also began to ex- expand in Brazil, and you have all of these families that are saying we were okay up until the point where you begin to take our children, mm-hmm. but what are our alternatives? And so now you have a country of, you know, the size of the continental United States. Um, 250 million people without a single classical publishing press, without a single homeschool co-op, without a single homeschool curriculum company, no alternatives, and people beginning to say, what's what's our recourse? Interesting. And they began to talk to us because my mom was fairly famous for having homeschooled this radical idea, homeschooled her five kids, and one's a doctor, medical doctor, one's a doctor of philosophy, an engineer, you know, successful successful um, students. How is this possible mm-hmm. for you as a mom to have educated your children successfully? And so we begin to start fielding questions. And that stimulated a lot of the work that we've been doing um, through our family organization called EDI Global. EDI Global. And now homeschooling is not illegal, but not quite legal. It's kind of in limbo at the moment. At the moment, that's true. Five years ago, it was completely illegal. Mm-hmm. And then we were invited in uh, to testify about whether homeschooling is truly harmful for children. I had the opportunity of presenting to uh, the president of the Senate and to the Department of Education, to the executive committee, um, the executive um, office about homeschooling, which is a very foreign concept. And basically, my testimony was, I grew up in the Amazon. I grew up fishing and canoes and all sorts of things, but I was home educated and I have a doctorate from Oxford and I'm a successful, healthy individual. This is possible. (laughs) And that was instrumental. We began to bring in some other moms um, who had been homeschooling illegally and um, one wonderful uh, lady just testified saying, you can can throw me in jail. You, You can kill me if you need, but I'll never give you back my kids. And that began to have a sea change in the political sector and now it is decriminalized in Brazil at the federal level. Mm-hmm. But now state by state, there's, there are certain states that will prosecute you and certain states that won't. Okay. And then there's a movement to basically change the federal law. That's right. And so you are involved in finding and translating and publishing and distributing mostly classical education sorts of 
uh, homeschool education materials. Yes, that's correct. For the whole country, we didn't have any of these books. We didn't have any of the kind of go-to resources that you would kind of typically order um, mm-hmm. from from a, from a company here in the States. Go to Amazon or jump onto a homeschool website. None of that exists in Brazil. So people were limited to to if they knew English and if they could find it and pay big shipping fees, they could get books from right. the States. But now you've got a, a whole company that is doing this and how many would you estimate now are there people either homeschooling or planning to do so or trying to look for some alternative right now in the country? Yeah, so within our organization, we support um, over 300 small communities across Brazil, which has about 5,000 students in those communities. Um, over the last four years, that's emerged kind of that we support directly. Mm-hmm. Um, there are on estimate, fifty to 60,000 um, other students that are out there kind of I- independently studying. Wow. Um, and that is growing exponentially year to year. Um, it's, it's, it's expanding massively. Our biggest challenge is how do you resource uh, these, these, these families? And we began to license, translate, and distribute products across Brazil, some in digital format, um, some in physical format. It's very interesting. You think about the Amazon, you would think, well, you know, you would always – you probably would do physical products in, in the Amazon and get books up there, not digital. But it's funny because when it's 105 degrees and 100% humidity, the glue melts, <laughs> pages fall out. <laughs> so we have families buying an iPad or, an, or a Kindle using all the resources digitally. And then when the Kindle breaks, they just buy another one. So just trying to find what are the best ways of serving a, a community as large and as diverse as Brazil. Right. So this was our introduction to you where you were starting to translate some of our materials, and that would have been a couple years, two or three years ago. But then you woke up at night and said, you know, I just don't have enough to do. I'm going to create <laughs> an entirely new program and enter Christian Halls International. Yeah, so Christian Halls International um, was really driven by the needs of families who had pulled their kids out of the public system and therefore had made themselves ineligible for the college programs in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of countries are like that. If you make the decision to homeschool, you have pretty much eliminated your chance for higher education in that same continuum. And so it, it makes you realize, well, it's even more of a a sacrifice or a risk. It's a huge barrier. It's a huge bottleneck for families that know they can't keep their kids in this current system of K-12 but they're terrified to move out of it because they don't see a pathway forward in the college space. And so we looked at that as a family and we said, we need to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. And so um, took a long look at um, higher education and how do we press into this? Do we start new colleges? Do we start new universities? You know, all of those kind of questions. And higher education has been in a state of flux for a number of years now as online education has really become uh, prevalent. You have enormous amounts of, of students that are studying online. And st- schools use this. In many ways, they, they commodify themselves, um, create a product out of their online program, and then kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, it'll be the same. There will be the same kind of formational opportunities. And what we find is there's really good data transfer. There's really good knowledge transfer. They can be very knowledgeable, but very little wisdom. And so very smart individuals that have um, a hard time when it comes to wisdom. And so we looked at that and what we we said was, um, let's go to some of our different university partners, King's College New York, 
um, Colorado Christian, um, Laterno University in Texas for Polytechnic. Let's use their online degree programs, but let's deploy them into these local communities based on an Oxford model, based on finding a local tutor in a local community and building out these small cohorts of students that are getting a degree from one of our partner universities, but they're getting all the rich formational kind of tutorial community that I experienced in Oxford. And uh, lo and behold, the universities went for it. They saw, many of their faculty members saw that there were deficiencies in what they were trying to achieve. They were very, very good at the kind of knowledge information side, but they were also wanting uh, a different model, kind of rethinking and redesigning what is ideal distance education. They kind of been driven this direction by the market, Mm -hmm. but they're also dissatisfied with some of the outcomes. And so as a result, now four years in, uh, we have over 200 degree programs that we can offer from dual credit, undergraduate, graduate, even PhD programs that we can base out of these small local communities of of formation. So I spend most of my time going around and trying to find those mentors and tutors that want to gather five, six students under them and say, I'm going to pour into you. Let's meet once a week, twice a week, discuss your work, engage in discussion while getting a non-debt, Christ-centered, community-oriented degree program. So that's that's been the, the impetus of Christian Halls International. It's such a vision, such an incredible vision. So we started this conversation to talk about college writing and the inadequacies of the students going into college, but also juxtaposing that with the IEW students who seem to be doing very well. And so when you approached us just a few months ago, you said, We've got this really amazing idea. Yeah. Well, we also had been receiving feedback from our students and from our tutors just how well-received the IEW program has been by by our families. And when you start to dig into a lot of the college classes, what you find is that the curriculum tail kind of ends up wagging the educational dog. When you say curriculum tail, that's a metaphor. What does that mean? So when you have an English composition class that is written by a Pearson executive or by a Macmillan or by an Elsevier writer, in many ways, the writing of the curriculum guides the direction and the the tenor of that entire class. The professor is there to teach, of course, but they're in many ways beholden to the kind of curriculum that they're using. And so we have universities that have contracts and licenses with publishing companies. And really what's guiding the entire worldview of that class is the material that they're licensing to use in their, in their college. And we began to be very discontented with the worldview that was being transmitted, not by the university necessarily, or even the faculty member who maybe have very good intentions, but by the curriculum that's being selected. And even the Christian Catholic private schools are mostly in that world of the the big name textbook publishers. That's right. Yeah. And so then we said to our universities, well, instead of using um, these 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 textbooks and these these materials um, that really are, I'll use the word orthogonal, which is really kind of counter at a, at a right angle to what the parents and the students want to see. What if we brought in curriculum that really did align with the values and and uh, outcomes that we want to see with our students? And we said. Let's pick a class that everybody has to take that's kind of universally needed and let's let's pick English composition one and two. 
It's necessary for general education. The vast majority of our degree programs require it. It's well accepted that people can do this both at dual credit down in the high school level and also post high school in their, in their college classes. And so our university said, that's great. Um, what curriculum would you like to use? And we said, well, we've got this great curriculum that you really should evaluate. And we think it could be a really good fit. And we presented IEW. And we have some great solutions, I think, for the English Composition 1 and 2 side of things, which unfortunately, those classes have become increasingly weaponized and increasingly ideologically weighted. Mm -hmm. You're not learning to write. You're really learning a worldview mm -hmm. within those classes. So let me just clarify that, Nick. What you're saying to us is that you pitched to fully accredited, well-known universities. You should allow us to use IEW and count it as your English Comp 1 and Comp 2 classes. Wow. Yeah, what they allowed us to do is to say, give us a professor of record that's credentialed, that, that, that is fully credentialed. We'll hire them as, as an adjunct and have them teach through a class that is a good, solid college-level class, but then choose a curriculum that is a good, solid curriculum. And we said, great. We have credentialed IEW instructors with master's degrees. We have a wonderful curriculum that we can use. We would prefer to offer that class, that section of English Composition 1, instead of the one that you're currently using. And Donnelly College, um, which is a very good Catholic school in, in uh, Kansas City, and Southeastern University, uh, a, a school down in Florida, said, we would love to use this as our English Composition 1 and 2 classes. Let's get rolling. Julie's smile is a mile wide I, right now. I just can't believe it. It's just so exciting. You know what's interesting is I meet occasionally, well, fairly often, homeschooling families, and one of the parents – in some cases, both are teaching at the university level, say, looking at what their 12 and 14-year-olds are doing in the homeschool, thinking, I wish my college students would do that right now. And often it's hard because they're teaching some other subject. But I do know a few of them that have sneaked in some ideas yeah. um, you know, from their homeschool curriculum into their – all right. When you guys write a paper for me, here's some quick tips. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I know it's happening. Let's do some sentences. Um, give us yeah. a little bit of a sense of how a Christian Hall's community program, whatever you call it, starts up. Because you, you've got many of these and more coming online very quickly. So how does it happen? Yes. So when we start a Christian Hall community, it's really – focused around a local tutor. Um, if you are somebody who loves English composition or English or English language and you want to gather two or three students around you, we would like to say, contact us. We would love for you to tutor these students through an IEW English composition class. And then, of course, you've got all number of classes that Absolutely. once that community gets started. That's right. Then we can extend that to a 60 credit hour um, uh, associate's degree for $100 a credit hour. You know, for $6,000, get a, a great associate's program from a top-tier Christian university. Now we can do all sorts of things, but we're really excited to start with a very simple cornerstone, you know, the IEW English Composition course. Mm -hmm. And then we can build from there based on the talent of the local tutors. And, and so a lot of these uh, families that are doing this are using it as kind of a dual enrollment option. So the the students are not necessarily all college age. They may be, well, 
How, what age? Yeah, you can start with as young, depending, you as the parent need to govern this. You need to be very careful. Um, but um, we can start with as young as 15 mm-hmm. and we can go as old as 19 at the, at the dual credit side. Mm-hmm. After 19, you need to move into a non-dual credit, fully enrolled college student. You need to pick a, a school, you need to pick a degree program. Um, but we can start as young as 15 and then go on from there. Wow. And so I know just because I have a little inside information, these are the Christian Hall's local community, but this first foray into this is extended beyond that. So if mom wants to, well, how does that work? Yeah, so that's a great point. We we do love the power of community formation. You know, we, are, we don't want to just do an education data transfer. We really want to see healthy form, formation happen in flourishing communities. Um, and so our focus has been going around and finding tutors and mentors to start these communities. However, we also know that there are a lot of moms out there. There's a lot of kids out there, a lot of dads that have said, I would love to do my English comp class instead of going to my local community college and getting dual credit. I'd love to do this with a, with a curriculum that we know and love. And so we've opened up the doors a little bit more uh, to say, you know, you don't have to start a Christian hall. Um, you can come to christianhalls.org slash IEW and enroll for dual credit in using English Comp 1 or English Comp 2 um, from either Donnelly or Southeastern. A very direct, very simple, very straightforward. Um, and we think that there's tremendous value there. We would also say if this kind of early taste is interesting, think about taking back governance within the, the space. In the same way that you've taken governance from K through 12, mm-hmm. Just because 12th grade happens doesn't mean the timer's gone ding and you no longer have a role in, in formation and governance for, for your children. And so we would encourage you to, to, to find us and look at what we're doing with Christian Halls. Think about starting a community-based, uh, tutor-led, parent-governed community that really does integrate more fully into the life of, of your community. And you can still end up with your associates or even a bachelor's and you've got all the way up to master's and Ph.D., Options. That's right, because we're not – Christian Halls International is not a school. Mm-hmm. We're really trying to serve those local communities by connecting them with our universities and doing it in a pay-as-you-go, non-debt-inducing approach so that you can really build a, a flourishing life um, around education. So you, you get the best of all worlds. You get to choose the subjects you want to study. You can begin at a younger age – get the financial as well as intellectual and academic benefits of starting younger. You have students to be with, um, a tutor, a mentor of some sort to facilitate, and yet the um, the external accountability, I guess, from an accredited institution. And is there anything not good about this? Is there any (laughs) downside? I mean, honestly, as we start to look at how this begins to impact our communities, even the business community now coming to us, I've got a very dear friend, Ben Hagen, uh, who lives in in, in Dallas-Fort Worth. And he's just sending, send me these students. I need people in my organization that can write and can can communicate well. I need virtuous people in my organization. Mm -hmm. Send these people to me. And so now we're starting to see the cornerstones of what does flourishing look like. Healthy families with healthy churches, healthy businesses, healthy students that can really come around each other and and create flourishing. And by finding the right kind of partners like IEW, that gives us the ability of really saying, you focus on the curriculum, you focus on the content. 
our families can focus on governance, formation, virtue, character, and, 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 and the good life. Just this morning, I opened up my inbox and I got this article, which was, I think, a summary of a book someone wrote. I'm not completely sure, but the headline was, Education Today is Worthless. <laughs> and, you know, and it went all the reasons as to why the classes are politically driven and watered down. I'm not sure if it was talking about you know, high school or college, I, I seem to think it was more on that side. And I predicted mm -hmm. 15 years ago that the university system would start to collapse mm -hmm. under the weight of its overpriced, really bad product. Mm -hmm. And so when I see what you're doing, I just get so excited. I'm just 100% behind it. I hope there are 100 Christian halls, programs, in every major city, I don't know, how soon can you get that done? Three years? Well, our goal, to be honest, our goal would be if there is a community college, a secular community college in a county, we want to have an alternative. That yeah. That's the kind of scale. But it will, it's not that we own these. We are never going to centralize and own these. We need local governance. We need radical decentralization. I love that. Parents, business leaders, churches can come and say, we will take governance of this. Yeah. And so that's the, that's the only way that we're going to grow. I'm going to focus on individual communities, individual um, kind of organic groups of people that can come around us. And if you call us, we'll work with you. Awesome. So it's christianhalls.org. Yes. And, and, if, and if you want to learn about the dual enrollment option, it's christianhalls.org slash IEW. That's right. Very simple. And dear listener, you're hearing it. Probably one of the first times we've actually talked about this publicly. We've kind of been working on it for um, not too long. Nick, you're you're an amazing man, and you get a lot done. But these are students, high school students, that are taking the structure or an over high school student. Or There's over, no limit. There. That's true. That's true. Right? You can go anyway. But you're getting college credit for taking the structure and style for students year one level C combined with the Fix-It Level 5 materials. Put that together, and you've got two semesters of English, which is just incredible. So it's, it's, it's a dream come true, Andrew. All college students, well, or at least the college students that are enrolled in this program, are getting college credit from fully accredited universities that can transfer to any school pretty much, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is not just some one-off. These are legitimate universities who are acknowledging these IEW classes, year one level C, are, are college level. Rigorous enough, yep. challenging enough, and of course, provide more basic skills and, and transferable skills yep. than a lot of college classes I've heard about myself. And, you know, this really solves the problem of the mom who walks up to me and says, well, you know, I have a 10th grader. How do I get them ready for college writing, right. well, the answer is just do it. There's nothing miraculous or, 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 or special about your freshman year of college. Just do it. Do it now. Yeah, yep. I love it. Good. Well, well, we'll have to get you back in a couple of years and you can give us a progress support because this is very, very exciting. Can't wait. And Andrew, I almost wish we would have broken this into two podcasts because we probably could talk for another half an hour or so with I'll this come back anytime you want. brilliant mind, but we do need to wrap it up. So thank you, Dr. Ellis, for being with us today. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much.
Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Here you can also find show notes and relevant links from today's broadcast. One last thing. Would you mind going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast? This really helps other smart, caring listeners like you find us. Thanks so much.